The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I am Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at TBC. And it was great having so many of you all come out last week for our Easter services. And uh, it's really good to see you all back this week as well as we launch a brand new series. Before we get into the series, though, I want to let you know about a need that we have here at TBC, a really good problem to have, is we have a lot more little kids coming to our family ministry here at TBC the last few months. And so because of that growth, we need a lot more help And we would love to invite many of you into disciple-making with kids uh, here at TBC. So there is a table out there in the lobby that you can visit on your way out. And they are giving out, I think, free Skittles (laughs) and some T-shirts as well. And so if you can uh, at least show interest in in signing up, they can let you know more about what to do and next steps for you with that. But um, we would love for you to step into... um, just what it means to make disciples um, with, our, with, our, with our kids here and families that are at our church here at TBC and uh, be, experience that blessing um, for yourselves. So today we are launching a brand new series, and the title of the series is Learning from Jesus, and it's really focused in on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and we'll spend a few months just zeroing in on these, uh, this sermon that Jesus preached so many years ago. And uh, you know, many of you all know that we went to Israel um, back in May with some people here at TBC and also other churches as well, about 35 of us total, I believe. And, um, and I was so excited for the trip, and I found out about a month before we went on the trip that um, I really thought that the tour guide did all the heavy lifting on this thing, and I would just get to chill with our people. And, uh, and then about a month before the trip, I was informed that, no, one of the great blessings of this trip is as one of the preachers, you get to stand up and give some devotionals in some of these locations. And I just instantly felt super intimidated, knowing we're going to be doing these devotionals in these locations where these things took place. And, um, but when I saw the schedule come out, and I, and I thought of which ones do I want to pick, um, I picked the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you might say that's pretty presumptuous of you, Dave, to do that. But I, I chose that one. I was so excited to do that one. And I think it was on day two or day three of the trip. And, but as it began to approach, I printed off some old notes that I had on that, on the Beatitudes, and thought I'll just focus on the Beatitudes. And, uh, but for some reason, that was the one that I felt most nervous and anxious about. I think just the prospect of, of being in this location and doing a devotional on this topic for even 10 minutes in front of this, this small crowd of people just seem kind of intimidating to me, you know? And uh, so here's some pictures uh, that we have of this area. I don't think that building was there back then uh, when this sermon was preached. And, uh, but there's a church in that area as well uh, to commemorate this location, a chapel. And this is our little group up there on the hill. And uh, nice place for us to sit and, and hear this devotional. And what was interesting, though, is, is as I was giving this little devotional in the Beatitudes on that, sun, on that, on that day, uh, something happened. It was like I got like lost in my notes or something, and I end up like leaving out half, skipping over half of the Beatitudes. So let's hope that doesn't happen today, right? I'm calling this a do. I get a do over today. This is my do over. And uh, but my favorite picture in this sequence is this one. Uh, if you'll notice some observations here. Um, <laughs> Lisa in the front is listening intently to everything I have to say. 
Billy is behind her. It looks like he's meditating. And then over to the left, we have someone that resembles my sweet wife who is looking up in the trees at birds. I'm over here giving the Sermon on the Mount, and she's distracted by birds. Now, I doubt that happened when Jesus was preaching. I'm sure everyone paid attention when he, had, when he would teach these things. Now, listen, I had permission to say all that. My wife, I showed her these photos. She said, you need to put that one in there. I had permission. Now, there are many famous sayings in this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. You're the salt of the earth. Judge not that you be not judged. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. The Lord's prayer is in this sermon. We're going to hear Jesus talk about anger, anxiety, revenge, lust, marriage. These are his most well-known teachings, but often the least understood. So before we dive in, I want to look at what was happening right before he preached this sermon. So look back at Matthew 4, 23 to 25, where it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. What's amazing is whenever you're in that area of Galilee, it still seems like it's sparsely populated. It still feels like a sleeping, a sleepy uh, fishing village in a lot of the areas around there. But what stands out when you're there is you realize that about 80% of his ministry was spent in that area around the Sea of Galilee. And he goes just town to town, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And his primary message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's given them a picture of what life looks like when we live under his reign and his rule. We recently just finished a series in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and in that series, we heard about this, this new commandment that John talked about, that we love one another as he has loved us. And the Sermon on the Mount is really just an elaboration of that idea. So this series will be a great follow-up to our previous series, What Does It Look Like to Love God and to Love Others?, So this, in Matthew 4, it says here that he did uh, miracles in addition to teaching. And I think at times we we think of his miracles like they're just magic tricks. Like he just does these, these amazing things to show his power and to show his authority. And that's partly true, but his miracles mean so much more than that. He's not he's not just simply announcing his kingdom, but the miracles are the inbreaking of that kingdom. And his proclamation that he has authority over disease and over death. So throughout his ministry, Jesus didn't just do miracles and he didn't just teach, but he did both. He taught and he healed. And we see this here in Matthew 4. This combination of teaching and healing, as you would imagine, it drew great crowds. And so they're coming from the local regions around Galilee, 
but they're also coming from faraway places like Jerusalem and Judea. That's about 75 miles away. That's a long walk or a long donkey ride to get to the Sea of Galilee. But that's his reputation. He's become so well-known with his teaching and miracles. They're coming from that far away, from the cities to this area to hear and to see Jesus. So we know this crowd has, there are genuine disciples, but there are also people that are drawn in by the show, drawn in by the miracles. So what does Jesus do? We'll look at Matthew 5, 1 and 2, where it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, Jesus does something we don't expect, because he's been... He's been preaching and healing people, and these crowds are following him. And what does he do? He leaves. He says, I'm going to get out of here. And he goes up this mountain. Now, why would he go, on this, go up this mountain? Well, maybe the, the Sermon on the Mount sounds better than the sermon down in the valley. Might be part of it, but I'm not sure that's why he, he did this. But it, it might be to weed some people out, saying, who wants to follow me? If you say, I'm going to climb this mountain, looks at the crowd, decides to climb a mountain, there are some that might say, I'm not going up that mountain. I'm out of here. And so we can imagine there's like a thinning out going on here. But some of the crowd, of course, continues to follow him and go up with him on top of this mount. But the reality is Jesus, he, he wants disciples, not just a big crowd. Look at his posture here in Matthew 5. He sits down, not just because he'd climbed a mountain, but that was how a rabbi taught. Sitting down showed his authority. In our culture today, the person who's usually teaching is, is standing up and the crowd sits down. You have the easy job. And in that day, the rabbi would often sit down to teach. It showed the place of authority, and that's what Jesus does here. And his disciples come to him because they know he's about to teach. So the disciples are his primary audience, while the crowd is a secondary audience. Going up a mountain also carries great biblical significance because throughout the Bible, that was where people would meet gods, on a mountain, on the mountaintop. Where does, where does Moses receive the law? On a mountain. Some see a strong relationship with with Moses receiving the law and Jesus giving this new law for his followers. Now, when I say new law, I do not mean that this is what we need to do to become a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is not, here's the things you need to check off so that you can become a Christian. That is a salvation based on works. But on the one hand, the law in the Old Testament shows that we can't live up to it, and it should point us to the fact that we are in need of a Savior. That is the law's, one of the law's functions, is to show us that we don't measure up and that we indeed need a Savior. I like how John Stott says this. He says, the law sends us to Christ to be justified. That means declared righteous. And Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. Now, we don't go back to the law, again, in order to check off things and feel better about ourselves in, 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 in front of God. But the law still serves a function to an extent, not the old ceremonial and some of the civic laws of Israel, but the law as a whole, there's still a function it plays in, in the sense of being sanctified and, 
and growing spiritually. And so Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So in this sermon, Jesus is going to describe the character of a Christian. Again, not how you become a Christian, but this is how believers should live. And this is what I think this sermon is about. And the first section is called the Beatitudes, and it's based on the Latin word beatus, meaning blessed or happy. Now, I don't have to tell you this, you already know it, but in our world today, happiness is an emotion that we experience based on our circumstances, and that's not what is being referred to here. This is much more than that. This is a state of well-being for those who respond in repentance to Jesus. He's not making a statement about emotion, but declaring how God sees his followers. So the statements that we're going to see in this sermon are really statements about identity. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see two movements when we look at the Beatitudes. The first is our relationship with God, and the second is our relationship with one another. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, at times with the Beatitudes, we start to see them as just these disconnected statements. When I was growing up in the church, in the Christian faith, I would often see these statements like Proverbs, just disconnected, like I didn't really make a connection between the different ones. But you're going to see today how they very intricately connect, and they've got to be seen as a whole, and they build upon one another. And this one is first because the rest are built upon it, and if it's not first, If it's not first, then the rest will not follow. Now, whenever you and I hear the the phrase, poor in spirit, we think of physical poverty, but I don't believe that he's talking about that here. There can be a connection made to that, but I don't think that's his main emphasis here. The key words, I think, are in spirit, because he's talking about spiritual poverty. Now, we need to know about physical poverty, to understand spiritual poverty, because to be poor means someone lacks sufficient resources. And so when you think about, I know many of you here, you have traveled all over the country, traveled all over the world. You have seen places, whether it's here in Central Texas or all over the world, other parts of the U.S., you have seen destitute poverty. You've seen it firsthand. And think of the most extreme example of poverty you can think of in your mind. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is, does that picture describe ourselves as it relates to God spiritually? That we have nothing to bring him, nothing to offer him. Does that, does that picture define ourselves in relation to God? That we are spiritually bankrupt before him. You know, another temptation that we fall into with the Beatitudes is we start to see each one like it's just a personality or a temperament thing. Oh, that, that person, they're, 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 they're poor in spirit, just naturally. But these are really spiritual things that should be true of every Christian. And so we can't just say, you know, that person, they, they've got a humble disposition about them. Because we could say that even of an unbeliever. But when you look at the Bible, go back to someone like Peter, because before he comes to know Jesus... He has a certain kind of personality. We know what that is. He's naturally aggressive and assertive and self-confident. But then he comes to know Jesus, and he sees who Jesus really is. And he says in Luke chapter 5, he says, depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's poor in spirit. That's being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit does not mean that someone suddenly becomes timid and shy. Because Peter did not become timid and shy when, once he came to know Jesus. God sanctified and redeemed his confidence and used it for his kingdom. It was one of the greatest gifts of the church to use his confidence and boldness for the furthering of the gospel. So it's not, it's not about personality. So how do you and I become poor in spirit? Well, not by just looking at ourselves, but by looking at who God is. And that is how we come to see our own spiritual poverty. The first beatitude, this is really important, the first beatitude is about, is about emptying. And the rest are about filling. And we cannot be filled until we see ourselves as empty. Look at verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, this is not, we often hear this one uh, read at funerals. And again, I'm not going to say that's a horrible thing, but that's not really what I think it's talking about here. This is not about Jesus taking that frown and turning it upside down. It's not about that. But it's, it's not about just mourning or being sad in the way that we might imagine. But this is a spiritual mourning. This is a grieving over our sin. And it flows from the first being poor in spirit. Now, I know for us here in the church, we often don't struggle to grieve the sins that are out there in the culture or out there in the world, do we? We don't, we don't have a problem looking at the sins outside of ourselves and grieving or mourning or being angry about those things, but we have great difficulty grieving about our own sins. We treat sin pretty casually. We, we say things like, yeah, yeah, we all mess up. Everybody's human. But when have we grieved or, or mourned over our sin? We, we may admit our sin in general. If you were to ask people sitting next to you, do, are you a sinner? Have you sinned? Of course, we're all going to say, yes, of course I have. So we admit sin in general. We don't have a problem with that. But we struggle to get specific. We struggle to get particular and say, yeah, I, I confess sin in this situation. And I will, I will tell you that when I was looking at this in verse 4, I really felt great conviction that I don't ever mourn over my sin. And I, I had a second layer of conviction as well because as someone who, who teaches up here and also down with the students regularly, I don't think we, we teach this so well in the church that we need to mourn over our sin and grieve our sin. I think because we're so worried that we'll make ourselves and others feel, feel guilty or feel ashamed, that, that we're, we're scared of this process of mourning over our sin. Or maybe we see mourning over sin as, as something that we do. Yeah, I did that at salvation. I did that when I became a Christian. But what about after we're saved? And, and you might say, well, well, Dave, that defies everything I know about grace and mercy and what I've been taught 
to embrace my identity as a child of God. And I understand that argument. But look at the structure here in this passage. There is, there is blessing for those who mourn over their sin. That is where true comfort is found. We, we often seek comfort by not mourning over our sin. It's not a comfortable place for us to be, we don't think. You might say it like this, we all want grace, but in order to be comforted by that grace, we need to understand the depth of the offense. We, we try to jump so quickly to grace talk and mercy talk, and there is place for that. Of course there is. It's biblical. But we, we want to jump so fast to that sometimes that we, we bypass, I think, this idea of, of mourning over our sin sometimes. Paul covers this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8. You can read ahead on that if you want later on. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, where Paul is going to talk about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow over sin. So worldly sorrow is being sorry we got caught, grieving about the, maybe the external losses due to our sin. That could be family or financial or friends or standing in the community. And, and we, can, we grieve that. And you've seen celebrities, movie stars, athletes that have had great falls in, in public view, and there's been shame and humiliation and mockery over those things. But so often, it just leads to this worldly grief and not godly grief. It leads to grieving just the loss, the physical losses. And Paul says that kind of worldly grief leads to death, but godly grief produces repentance. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he expounds further and says, your great sorrow leads to joy, and without the sorrow, there is no joy. Now, this is not only true at conversion. It is something that continues to be true about the Christian. He finds himself guilty of sin, and at first it casts him down and makes him mourn, but that in turn drives him back to Christ, and the moment he goes back to Christ, his peace and happiness return, and he's comforted. If we avoid mourning over our sin, then we avoid Christ. That's what I think we don't realize, is that whenever you and I think about this concept of mourning over our sin, we're, we're like, I'm a Christian. I don't need to do that. I've already done that 20 years ago. But we fail to realize that even in our sanctification, there needs to be this recognition and this, this aspect of mourning over our sin, even when we fail people or we sin as a believer. So this will happen at conversion, but it also happens throughout the life of a believer. And we must be willing to walk through the door of mourning if we are to walk out the other side into joy. Look at verse 5. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, when we hear the word meek, what, what, what do you think of? What word comes to mind? It rhymes with meek, weak. That's where our mind typically goes. But meekness is not weakness. And again, we're tempted to get into personality type, right? You know, that person there, they're just so, they're so meek. 
They don't have strong opinions. They, they go along to get along. They are so nice. But even animals can be nice, some more than others. So this is a, a spiritual quality. It's not meant to be a personality type. But it means to have, meekness is to have a right view of oneself. A right view of oneself before God and other people. And we should never associate it with weakness. But it should be seen as strength. And if Jesus was the most meek person who ever walked on this earth, that means that he was even meek, when I think about one of the hardest things to wrap your mind around, it's hard for us to see how he was meek when he was turning over tables in the temple, right? It's not as if he said, okay, let me take a meekness time out. Somebody hold my lamb while I wreak havoc on these people. That's not how that happened. He never had to go apologize to his disciples and say, I'm sorry, guys, I kind of lost my cool there. He was just as meek then as he was the rest of his ministry. Some have defined meekness this way, as power under control. I heard someone compare it to uh, the players on a football team. You know, many players are, are strong and powerful. Some are faster than others on the, on the team. But they don't exert all their speed and all their power all the time. If they did, that would be chaos. It'd be like peewee football. But they know how and when to use it. And that's meekness. It's having a right view of oneself and a right view of others. So the person who is meek knows when to speak truth, how to speak truth. We think of meekness as being someone who's just, oh, they're, they're, they're meek. That means they're, they're like a pushover. They, they go along to get along. Peace at any price. But that's not meekness. So you see the building here. So being poor in spirit leads to mourning over our sin, which leads to meekness, which is a right view of oneself. And then Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what kind of righteousness? Well, there's, there's legal righteousness, which is right standing before God, right relationship with God. Then there's moral righteousness, which is living in such a way to please God. So there's a moral component to this. Now, at that time, many only valued external obedience with God, but Jesus spends this whole sermon taking everything to the heart. So whenever you and I first start following Jesus, we may at first have this desire to obey at the beginning, but as we go on, we may start to grow weary in doing good. So we've talked about mourning over sin, but here's the good news. We don't have to stay there. We don't stay in our place of mourning. We should move into a, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And I think here's how this can go wrong for us, is that we hunger and thirst for happiness. We chase it. Our culture tells us to chase it. Some in the church even tell us to chase it. You know, if you're not happy, well, then, then get out. If, if you don't like how you're living now then, and you're not happy, then, then leave. Get out of that situation and, and go find your happiness. Happiness is the card that if anyone plays, like, oh, you, oh, you need to be happy. Okay, well, that, then you can do whatever you want to do then. So we chase 
We chase after happiness. And I think this goes wrong for us because when you look at, the, when you look at God's kingdom, happiness is never to be sought after directly. It results from seeking something else. So think of someone who could be suffering from a, from a painful disease and they go see a doctor. And if the doctor is only interested in treating the pain and not figuring out where the pain's coming from or the disease, we would say that person's not a very good doctor. A good doctor treats the disease as long as it's still treatable. So chasing happiness alone is, is treating the pain and not treating the disease. Whenever we chase happiness, we miss out on both righteousness and happiness. So look at the, the two words used here in relation to righteousness. He says, hunger and thirst. Those are these visceral desires that we have. I mean, some of y'all are experiencing that right now as you sit there. You are hungry and thirsty, and it's all you can think about. So hunger and thirst means there is a, there is a pain associated with it. There is a desire that needs to be satiated. There is, a, there is this, this urge that we have, and we cannot rest until we have satisfied it. That is the, the yearning that's being talked about here. So what, what do you and I hunger and thirst for? And you know, so at times people think that what makes them a Christian is that they just sort of hang around Christian people or hang around the church. I see that especially in my role as the high school pastor here, that students will just start attending, which is great, but they make the mistake thinking that, yeah, yeah I'm a Christian because I hang around all these, these Christian people. That makes me a Christian. Or they think that being a Christian means you just flip some moral switch in yourselves, just trying to behave, trying to be good, trying to do better. But when God truly changes us, he changes our desires, what we hunger and thirst for. Now, of course, we struggle with sin as believers, but it's like what Paul describes over in Romans 7. You can read that later, but he describes this outer man and this inner man and the conflict between the two as a Christian. And he says, in the inner man, I desire to do what is right, but in my outer members, the members of my body, I still struggle with sin. And the Christian life is a conflict that's like that. We might still desire sin, but the question is, what is our deepest desire in the inner man? So being poor in spirit leads to mourning over our sin, which leads to meekness, a right view of oneself, which leads to this hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the first four deal with the relationship with God. This is vertical. Now, some believers think that they can say, you know, I love, I love God, but I just, I just don't, I don't like people. And that's really impossible because the vertical should always impact the horizontal. And these last four deal with our relationship with one another. Verse 7, where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what is mercy? Well, sometimes we use grace and mercy interchangeably, but here's how they're different. Grace deals with the guilt of sin. Mercy deals with the consequences of sin. We may experience great suffering because of our sin. And if we cry out to God, that's really a cry for mercy, a cry for God to make it stop. 
for him to bring relief from the consequences of our sin. So mercy playing out in our relationships with other people might look like this. If someone wrongs us and they repent, do we still hang consequences over their head? Do we still want to inflict pain on the person who's truly repentant in this situation? Do we, do we find ways to continue to punish that person? That, that would be someone, someone who's not merciful. Now, when you look at the structure of verse 7, it might appear to, to go against the gospel. Because it looks like he's saying, if you show mercy, then mercy will be shown to you. Like it's a workspace thing. Well, that's not what I think he's saying here. He's really saying that when someone truly receives mercy, they will be the kind of person who extends mercy to other people. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, of course, we know that no one can be pure in the heart apart from having the righteousness of Christ applied to them at salvation. But the Sermon on the Mount goes beyond external obedience and cuts right to the heart. You're going to see that later on in the sermon. These statements about the heart, that sin always begins in the heart. So pure in heart does not mean that we don't struggle with sin, but pure in heart means that your whole life, your public and your private life is, transpor- is, is transparent before God and before man. That you're not ashamed to like let people in and see what's happening with you. And it's not about just whether or not we have sinned, but it's about how we respond to sin. Do we repent? Do we turn from it? So being pure in heart is not about you and I having no sin. That's not true of anybody. But it's about how we respond to the sin that, that we should be able to clearly see and others can see, obviously, as well. Do we repent or do we live in hypocrisy covering up our sin? Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, whenever we hear peacemaker, we think we go back to personality and temperament again, don't we? We think of someone who, you know, they just, they just never rock the boat. They never cause controversy. But here's the question. Did Jesus ever rock the boat? Did he ever cause some controversy? You see, peacemaker is different than being a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is, is someone who's okay with the status quo. You know, maybe avoid conflict at all costs. Sacrifice truth for the sake of keeping the peace or sacrifice right and wrong and, and justice for the sake of not upsetting anybody. That's a peacekeeper. A peacemaker may cause conflict to bring about peace. How might that be? Well, look no further than how Jesus brings peace. How does he bring peace between God and man? Through one of the, great, the greatest conflict in history, which was the cross, Listen, even when we come to know Jesus, going back to the first one, this spiritual poverty idea, being poor in spirit, we have to acknowledge the hard truths about ourselves that we have nothing to offer God in and of ourselves. That that introduces a conflict into my life that I've got to admit that about myself. There is conflict. There's no peace there. But I want to go to him for peace. Because I recognize my sin, my, po- my impoverishment before him. We know that Jesus turned the religious establishment 
upside down, which then led to his death. He said that when people follow him, that it's going to turn people against one another, friends and families. You might say it like this, avoiding truth leads to peacekeeping, but embracing truth leads to peacemaking. So Jesus makes peace for us by going through the suffering of the cross. And you and I may have to experience conflict or suffering to make peace with someone else. So look at verse uh, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it might be surprising to see persecution mentioned right after peacemaking. But they are related because sometimes when we introduce people to the peace that Jesus brings, it's going to lead to persecution. If we live out of a poverty of spirit and we mourn over our sin and we live out meekness and we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are going to get persecuted. Now, this does not mean that we go out of our way looking for it, looking to be persecuted like some may try to do. But if we're living this way, then persecution is going to find us. We don't go looking for it. You know, I think sometimes in the, in the church culture, we have this, what I would call a, a martyr spirit, you know, speaking out on, on every issue or every cause. And when there's pushback, we say, aha, I'm being persecuted. But you kind of brought that on yourself. That's not really persecution for righteousness' sake, I don't believe. So we're going to get persecuted from the outside, but sometimes the persecution comes from within the church, right? And Jesus mentions that here. He says they persecuted the prophets. Well, who did? Well, Israel did. The nation of Israel persecuted the prophets. It was an inside job. We know Jesus was intensely persecuted by the religious elite of his day. And this happens among God's people even today. Now, this does not mean that everything that we experience negative in the body of Christ should be seen as persecution. But we know that suffering is going to come from the outside, but also will come from the inside. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he once wrote this. He said, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. So how do you and I come to rejoice in suffering? Well, first, we have to recognize that we're not, we're not above Jesus. If we're following Jesus, we are going to suffer. We are going to be persecuted in the same way that he was, in the same way that he suffered. So why is Jesus able to go up on a mountaintop and speak this blessing over his people? Well, I think Galatians 3, 13 to 14 tells us why. Because if you remember in the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk in Deuteronomy about blessings and cursings, right? 
And we come to Galatians 3, 13 to 14, where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus becomes a curse for us so that we might be called blessed. He takes on our spiritual poverty. He is the one that mourns over our sin and the sin of the whole world. He takes on meekness and walks, sets aside his rights and privileges and walks humbly on this earth. He is the one who hungered and thirsted for his father's will to be done. And he is the most merciful. He is the most pure in heart. And he is the greatest peacemaker in history. And finally, he is most persecuted beyond what you and I ever will experience. He becomes a curse so that we can be called blessed. And if you're a Christ follower, this is what you've gotten yourself into. And if you're not a Christ follower, there is a cost of following him, but it is so, it is so worth it. So Jesus doesn't just invite you to live this life alone by yourselves. He lived it first in our place, and he invites us to live it with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for these words that you spoke so many years ago. And God, we thank you that these words, these blessings, these are identity statements. You get to commands later in the sermon, but these are You start with identity. You start with being before doing. God, I pray that if there's people in here, whether they be believers who have just, they see their life as a list of of doing and a list of action and a list of, I've got to accomplish these things, these, these things that are in favor with God. God, may we be people who recognize that we come before you knowing our identity before you before we step out into obedience and doing. God, may we obey you from that place. I pray that there's people that are sitting here that don't yet know you, and maybe they've always seen the Christian faith as just just following a bunch of rules and a checklist. God, would you help them to be drawn in by the idea that you want to change them from the inside out? God, that you want to change their hearts God, that you want them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, we pray that you make us people that point people to you in that way, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.